This episode contains mature content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Content may be an emotional trigger for victims of abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Some names in today's story have been changed to protect identity, including all names of children. So I always like to say that normal life is like a slow cooker, but your time serving with Love Thy Neighborhood, it's like a pressure cooker. You just experience so much in such a little amount of time. And because of this highly pressurized experience, adjusting back to normal life can be tricky. Yeah, and that was certainly true for Layla Morris. So Layla served with Love Thy Neighborhood for a year, and then after her time of service, she moved back to her hometown. But life back at home, it seemed to be missing something. So when I first came back from my time with LPN, I felt really, like, lost. Like, I felt like I had heard God's voice clearly tell me to come to Louisville to serve at LPN. And then, like, leaving LPN, I didn't feel like I heard a clear voice. So Layla wasn't sure what direction she should take her life now. I mean, she just had this amazing experience of a year of social action and intentional Christian community. And she's like, now what? And it seemed like God wasn't really giving her any answers until one night. I was waitressing and my table, one of the guys was a pastor and he he thought he should pray for me. So Layla's serving this table at this restaurant. One of the guys at the table is a pastor and he's like, hey, can I pray for you? And Layla's never met this guy in her life, but she doesn't want to be rude. So she's like, okay, sure. And so when he prayed for me after, he like just spoke to me and was like, oh, um, I feel like there's something you're supposed to be doing, but you're, you're not because you're afraid. And so at first, Layla has no clue what to make of this. She has no idea what this pastor is talking about. But she also kind of agrees with him. Like she feels like there's something in life she's supposed to be doing She just didn't know what it was. That night, I went home and I was thinking really hard, a little too hard, and nothing came to me. But then, after a good night's sleep, she had it. But the next morning, when I woke up, it was like, boom, bam, like foster care, like foster. And I was thinking, like, no, this is crazy. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets foster care. We're telling the story of Layla, a single woman in her mid-20s who answered the call to be a foster parent. But for Layla, the fostering experience, it didn't end up being quite what she expected. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. On any given day in the United States, 438,000 children are in foster care. And those numbers have been on the rise for the last several years. But what hasn't been on the rise is the number of foster parents able to care for those kids. According to a recent study from the Foster Care Institute, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of foster parents will make the decision to stop fostering. And that makes sense. Being a foster parent is extremely challenging. I mean, you're dealing not only with a child who may have severe trauma, you're also dealing with caseworkers and court dates. And then there's the grief that comes should the child be reunited with the family. So Reverend Charles Loring Brace is considered the father of foster care in the United States. And he said this, when a child of the streets stands before you in rags with a tear-stained face, you cannot easily forget him. And yet you are perplexed what to do. 
The human soul is difficult to interfere with. You hesitate how far you should go. And it's good to know your limitations, what you can and cannot handle. And for Layla, you know, she's in her mid-20s, she's single, she's still establishing her career. Nothing about her life circumstances say you could handle being a foster parent. Yeah, but for Layla, it's not so much about circumstances. For her, it's more about what God has to say. In the book of James, chapter 1, James is urging Christians to not just be hearers of God's word, but doers as well. That we cannot truly hear God and then go about our life unchanged. And he ends this section with these words. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is what Layla believed and why she wanted to become a foster parent. And just to be clear, that morning when she woke up and she was like, boom, bam, foster care, that thought didn't just come out of left field. Like, fostering was something she had already been planning to do. She was just planning to do it much later in life. Like a whole boxed image of how like I wanted it to be like I wanted to be married I wanted to be secure in like finances and my home like I wanted to have my own biological kids first like that's how I thought it should go and for some people you know that is how it goes you're married you have your own kids and then you start fostering but for Layla she thought fostering was something she should do now like right now which kind of didn't make a whole lot of sense and that's why, like, when it kept coming to mind, I felt like, no, it's got to be all wrong because this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's kind of like a phone, like, when you don't want to answer the phone because you don't want to hear what's on the other side, but it's ringing. So all throughout the day, this thought persisted in her mind. Foster care. You should foster. Just call the agency. And so finally, Layla couldn't ignore it anymore. So she picked up the phone and she called the foster care agency. Oh my gosh, I I just can't even imagine that. I mean, she's voluntarily offering to be a single parent. Right. You know, a single mom. I mean, I've spent time with plenty of single moms. It is a very, very difficult lifestyle. Right. And she's, she's never parented before. Yeah. I mean, surely like some of her friends have got to be looking at her and going like, you are not ready to be a single mom. Yeah. Well, what's actually really surprising is that most of her friends were super supportive. I'd say maybe... 95% of the people in my life were very supportive. They were like, yeah, like, this is meant to be, do this. And so with the support of her community, Layla begins the process of becoming a licensed foster parent. Okay, so let me jump in for a second here. For folks who aren't familiar with the foster care system, I think it's important to know the process of becoming a foster parent. Now, it can vary from state to state, but it's basically a five-step process. So the first two steps are basically both about paperwork. Step one is about basic information. You know, your name, where you live, where you work. It's all simple. But step two, they're digging into things like your finances, your family history, your hobbies. I mean, you even have to describe people that you interact with on a regular basis. So imagine just having to take everything about your life and put it on paper. That is step two. Okay, so then step three, after all the paperwork, you attend a training class. And depending on who you're working with, if you're going through the state or an agency, these classes can last anywhere from four to 12 weeks. And you learn things like what to expect, common behaviors in foster kids, how to deal with trauma. And after you pass the class, you move to step four. And that's the home study. 
Okay, so this is the part of the process that I hear a lot about. You know, a lot of times I hear people saying like, oh, please pray for us. We're having our home study. Well, and that's because the home study just determines a lot. I mean, not only do you finally talk with one of the social workers face to face, this is where they really pay attention to what you can handle, what age range, if you have ethnic preference, religious preference, if you can accommodate a kid with special needs. And of course, they're also making sure that your environment is actually clean and kid-friendly. So then after the paperwork and the classes and the home study, you finally arrive at step five, where the state officially issues you a license to be a foster parent. And after that, you wait. I mean, sometimes you can end up waiting months before you get placed with a child. Which is probably a good thing, right? Like it gives you some time to mentally prepare for having new kids in your home. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about when a woman gets pregnant, I mean, she's got nine months to prepare herself for having a kid in her home. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though, is Layla actually didn't have much time to prepare because she got her first placement just three days after receiving her license. Oh, my gosh. Three days. Yep. That's like no time to prepare at all. Exactly. So just like that, Layla's now the foster parent of not just one, but actually two kids, a boy who's in third grade and his preschool age sister. The driver came, dropped him and sister off at my house, signed a few papers that showed that I could bring them to school and that I could bring them to the doctor, that I was now the foster parent. And then another paper for each of them that said that they were medically cleared. Gave me the papers, brought in all their stuff and drove away. And that was it. Whoa, that's incredible. I mean, that's just so fast. You know your own biological kids, like you've raised them from being a baby where you you've known them and you know like what they like and what they don't like what sets them off like all those things like I I didn't know it like I didn't have anything to pull from I only have two pieces of paper for each of them that don't tell me much despite you know not knowing anything about these kids I mean this is still kind of an exciting moment for Layla because you know she's felt like God has called her to be a foster parent she's been obedient to that call she's gone through the process she's gotten her license And so now she was able to be a safe environment for these kids right when they needed somebody, which was huge, especially since the boy was labeled as having behavioral special needs, which Layla had said in her home study that she could handle. I said that I would accept special needs because I had taught special ed class for one year at an elementary school. And so I felt confident that I could at least take low needs, special needs. But within just the first hour of these kids being in her home, Layla realizes there must have been some kind of mistake. And when they first came, I soon realized that the older child was more needy than they had known. Coming up, tantrums, a trip to the ER, and what to do when you're at your wit's end. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Ariana from Clarksville, Tennessee. I made an impact in foster care by serving for a summer with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode is Where the Gospel Meets Foster Care. Today we're telling the story of Layla. She's in her mid-20s, and she has just become a single parent for two foster kids, which in and of itself is just a daunting task. But then on top of that, she finds out that the older one, whose name is Trent, 
who is supposed to have minor behavioral special needs, well, she finds out his needs are not exactly minor. It's hard to paint the picture, but, like, he'd run around the house. He'd, like, throw punches. It was a lot. Like, a lot of swearing, a lot of spitting. So there are a lot of shocking behaviors. And this is actually, it's not uncommon. I mean, in fact, the estimates are that 80% of foster kids struggle with mental health in some way. And so when they came and I saw that, it was it was really wild. I, I didn't know what to do. I cried the first night. I actually cried. Layla knew that fostering was going to be hard, but she was not expecting it to be this hard. And so, you know, typically what do we do when life becomes hard and it's too much for us to handle? We turned our community. And so, Jesse, you remember when she said 95% of the folks in her life had been super supportive of her doing this and becoming a foster parent? Yeah, it was awesome. It was so great to see so many people wanting to support her. Yeah, well, now when Layla called on them for help and they actually met the kids and saw how these kids were behaving, especially the boy Trent, they weren't so sure that this was the right thing anymore. I would say maybe 75% of the people I knew, like, told me I should give them back because of the behaviors that he was showing and that it was too much. And I I wasn't getting support from a lot of people, like, you know, comments like, he needs a two-parent home, like, he needs a therapeutic home, he needs a dad. And I'm thinking, I obviously know what they need. Like, all kids need stuff like that, but there's a difference between the ideal and the real, and this is what's really happening right now. Layla knew her situation wasn't ideal, but ideal or not, Layla needed help. And if it wasn't going to come from her community, she was going to have to find it elsewhere. And so just two weeks after having these kids arrive in her home, she signs Trent up for therapy. We were going to go to a therapy session, and I was so excited because I thought that this was going to help us. And I guess I was looking forward to it because I thought, you know, now we're going to get the support that we need. But even the therapy ended up being less than ideal. So I brought him to the therapy session and he basically just flipped out. Things were everywhere. People were everywhere. My keys went missing. My car keys. It was crazy. Yeah, he was running around the place. He was violent. The words he said were violent. And it seemed like he was a danger to himself. And the therapist was saying that, in her opinion, he was out of control. And she felt that when kids are beyond parent control, then they can be admitted to the ER. And then from there, they would go to a treatment center. And so Layla has to make this decision really fast. She can either admit Trent to the ER to help him calm down, or she could somehow try to get him back home. Like, a lot of people are talking to you and saying, like, what are you going to do? And, like, the social worker is not there. And no one's there, but it's, it comes down to, like, me being the foster parent. Like, I have to decide, like, what's going to happen. And so, so what did she decide to do? She signs the paperwork. And so Trent is taken to the ER, and from the ER, he's put in a treatment center. Wow. I, I just could not imagine having to make that kind of decision. Right. I mean, like, you are now responsible for this human being who you don't know very well and who also isn't able to conduct himself in a socially acceptable manner. And it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, I'm also wondering, like, you know, what about the therapy session made him flip out like that? Yeah, okay, so I asked Layla if she was able to better describe some of the behavioral needs that Trent had and why he was acting this way. But for safety reasons, she said she wasn't able to elaborate any more than that. 
Well, okay, okay. So let me jump in for a second then. In order to actually better understand foster child behavior, let's leave Layla and turn to the treatment center for a second and actually go to another treatment center. These are kids that have been like really abused growing up and have been through it and then traumatized. And because of that trauma, they end up acting out. So this is Will Pratt. And Will, like Layla, he's also an alumni of Love That Neighborhood. And he works with foster kids every day. And so I work with those kids that are very physically aggressive, verbally aggressive. They can struggle with sexually acting out. Also suicidal, homicidal ideation, really intense behaviors. Okay, so the place where Will works, it's a psychiatric residential treatment facility here in Louisville. So after a kid like Trent is admitted to the hospital, he will then go to a treatment center like this one. And Will says about half the kids that he works with, they come from the foster care system. Some of the kids come to us with foster families and then had to leave their foster families and are no longer able to go back to their foster families because of how much they've struggled. So I asked Will if he had any kids at the center that are like that now who weren't able to go back to be with their foster families yet because their behavior is so dangerous. And without hesitation, he told me about a 12-year-old boy named James. James hated me when he first got there. Like he, every time he was upset, he would target me really physically aggressive. He's trying to punch at me. He's trying to like, well, he defecates on himself. Kids who typically do that have a history of like uh, sexual abuse or sexual trauma, and they use that as a defense mechanism. And then he'll start throwing his poop at you, basically. And the littlest thing could set him off. Like, for instance, this past week, I asked him to fold his pants, and then he like threw a fit and started crying and sobbing on the floor. So the reality for a foster kid is that they don't feel like they can trust anyone. I mean, either they've been abused or neglected, maybe bounced from home to home. They can be coming from some very dark pasts, and they're just kids. And they don't have the emotional maturity to express their feelings in a healthy way, and so they get violent and they act out. And so as part of Will's job, they practice what's known as SCM, which stands for Safe Crisis Management. It's a set of approved physical restraints, and they'll hold the children in these restraints as a means to de-escalate the situation and calm them down, to keep everybody safe, including the kid. And recently, James had a day where he was so out of control that he kept having to be restrained repeatedly. One time, I remember maybe two months ago, I went through four different restraints with him in the course of three hours one day. He was being violent. He was throwing stuff. He was punching at us. He was trying to strip naked and throw his poop at us. And we'd have to do restraints for like 20 to 30 minutes while this kid is screaming and crying. And like, he would just scream, break me, break me, break me. By the fourth restraint, like, not only was he screaming, break me, break me, uh, he was screaming, I want to die like my mother. Like, I, I want to kill myself like my mother. I just, I had to be switched out. Like, I, he calmed down for a minute, and I had to go to the office, and I had to, like, take some self-time and, like, cry a little bit just to process through that, because I, I love this kid so much. But what he's been through in his trauma and what he struggled with, he doesn't believe that anybody cares about him. He doesn't believe that anybody is fighting for him. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. I mean, when I think about a foster kid, typically I just think, like, oh, these are kids that just need a little love. And like, while that's true, they do need to be shown what love is. Like, they've just got layers and layers of 
trauma that, I mean, it's not going to be undone overnight. Well, in, in Scripture, in the book of James, chapter 1, you know, we're told to visit the orphans and visit the widows in their distress. And we conjure up Facebook profile images of holding sweet babies in our arms because we like our Christianity sanitized. We like the big victorious ending to everything. When the reality is that orphans, you know, because of what they've experienced, they're likely going to be relationally and emotionally damaged. And we're called to visit them, to step into their damaged world. And that just means this is going to get messy. Yeah. And when things get messy, you know, our initial reaction is to just step out, to get away from it. And so going back to Layla's story, Trent is in the treatment center and every day Layla's going to visit him. And the staff at the treatment center are actually asking Layla what she wants to do because one of the options on the table for her is to actually leave Trent at the center and not come back. There's a clear and acceptable path for her to step out of this mess. And I had quite a few people too, when he was in the treatment center, ask me like, what are you gonna do now? Because, you know, you could, I could leave him there. In my own humanness, I, every day I thought of that. I thought of like, what if I just don't come back? Like, or tell them that I can't do this anymore because it was overwhelming to me. But then I realized, but this is overwhelming to him. And like, how sad is it when you're at your lowest point that because everyone else is overwhelmed that we, we walk away. And so after a week, Trent is discharged from the treatment facility and Layla decides to bring him home to continue to be a foster family. And I just want to say this, you know, we are not wanting to pass judgment on any foster parents who have been in similar situations and have chosen to give their children back. Each situation, it is just unique. And none of us can really say what we would or would not do. Some of you have just been in impossibly difficult, no-win situations and have had to make some very difficult decisions. And we just want to extend compassion, not condemnation. There's a way like the textbooks would say to do it, or like there's sound advice that people could give or like you would think you would do in a situation that's of that nature. But we really don't know until we're in it. It gave me a, a deeper compassion for the people who do have to make a choice and do choose to walk away too, because there's no easy decisions to make. So at the time of our interview, Layla had been taking care of Trent and his sister for six weeks. And the hope is that Trent and his sister can be reunited with a family member. But the reality is there's just no telling how long that process is going to take. And so the real question is, I mean, does this make any difference? I mean, sacrificing your life for a foster kid, sticking with them, trying to love them. Does any of that really change them in the end? Well, to find out, we talked to this gentleman. Someone was asking me about, you know, what's your deal? And I'm like, I was a foster kid. And they're like, what do you mean you're a foster kid? What? Stay with us. Hi, this is Annie from Ellsworth, Kansas. I made an impact in foster care by serving for a year with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. Welcome back to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode is Where the Gospel Meets Foster Care. So far, we've heard from Layla and Will about the real struggles of caring for foster kids. And so we wanted to know, 
is this struggle worth it? Does having to hold a kid like James in a restraint for 30 minutes or taking a kid like Trent to a therapy session that just blows up in your face, does any of this make any difference in the lives of these kids? And to answer that, we asked someone who grew up in the foster care system, and his name is Jim Shields. My mom was never abusive She, in the sense that she would hit us or strike us, but it was just uh, a neglect. Uh, the house was, um, you just imagine a hoarder with four children, laundry, dirty laundry everywhere, cats. There was just always cats and not well-maintained. So it was always, it, it smelled bad, it was dirty. We would go to school, we would literally have cat feces on our clothes. And you were so, I guess, numbed by it that you didn't even notice it until you got to school and got teased about it. So it was just a very dirty environment. And while his mom wasn't abusive, Jim had other family members who were. So my earliest memory was being sexually abused in a pickup truck. I was uh, preschool age. And then it happened, you know, repeatedly until, um, you know, throughout preschool. And then when his mom got married, Jim's stepdad, he was also abusive. You know, the abuse started with him, the physical abuse. Being the oldest, I sort of took the brunt of it because he, you know, he would look to me to be the quote-unquote man of the house when he wasn't there. And so around eight years old, Jim is basically taking care of the house, watching his siblings, doing all the dishes, making all the meals. A lot of cooking, a lot of cleaning, a lot of, you know, and it obviously it some point you got to do some schoolwork in there too and the other we were sort of a lord of the flies environment with you know four kids you know so people talking about you know the best shoes and a cool jacket and great music and i'm like it's cool that i get to eat today and it's cool that i didn't get the crap kicked out of me by the people that are supposed to be caring for me and as jim grew older he started becoming aware of his circumstances and his reality and he no longer wanted anything to do with it. It was like when I turned like 14, 15, I was really cognizant of what was happening. I was more mature than most of the adults I knew at that point. All of the men that were in my life had been, with very few exceptions, were, you know, using or abusing me in some way. And I just said, that's not going to happen anymore. If it kills me and it knocks me out or gets me killed, I'm not letting another person put their hands on me. And so Jim ran away from home. Eventually, the cops found him. And once the situation at home was assessed, Jim was taken before a family court judge. I do remember the judge asking me, do you want to go to a group home or do you want to go to an individual, a foster home would be like a family. I didn't know what family meant, but I knew that in the, in the group home, it was more like a, it felt like a jail, be hard to escape. But if I was in a house, now that I can run away from. So I remember thinking, yeah, put me in a foster home, dummy. You know, the first chance I get, I'm out. So Jim was placed in his very first foster home, and this foster home was on a farm. It was a steer farm, and they were looking for young boys who were, you know, between the ages of 12 and 15 that really were strong enough to do the labor, but not really savvy enough to understand that they were really using the system. And, you know, it took me about a week to sort of figure out what their game was. And one day the father laid a hand on Jim, and you remember that was something that he vowed would never happen again. And he sat on my chest and hit me in the face. And I looked him in the eye and I told him, I know where your guns are at and I'm going to kill you. And I meant it. It was that commitment that I'd made to myself never to let another person abuse me or touch me. I never want to hurt any other human being, but I'm not willing to be hurt. After that, Jim's caseworker came. When she found out what was going on, all the foster kids were removed from that home, including Jim. Jim was placed with a new foster family, 
a lady named Carol, and her husband, Gary. He was a little short guy, worked at Bethlehem Steel as a crane operator. I remember sizing him up. I'm like, it's a little guy. I'm like, man, I can take him. You know, I can get out of here, you know? And again, within the first five or six minutes, I'm, I'm already thinking of my escape. And can I take this person? How would I do that? How do I escape danger? Because I was so in tune with I'm in danger regardless of where I was. So the caseworker leaves Jim with his new foster dad, Gary. And Gary tells Jim he's got something for him. Gary said, all right, come on, I want to take you out of the garage. And I'm like, all right, here it comes, right? I'm getting ready. Here comes the fifth, you know? And he showed me this row of dirt bikes. And uh, he said, I, I understand you like motorcycles. I said, yep. I said, I do. He goes, all right, pick one. And I'm like, I'll play your game. And I pointed this yellow two-stroke Yamaha dirt bike. And he goes, he said, that is your responsibility. He said, you're going to pay for the fuel. You'll pay for all those things. You'll maintain it on your own. If you break it, you're going to pay for it. He goes, now, if you get in trouble, you're not riding it. And then he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, I'll never lay my hands on you. And um, that family welcomed me in. I felt safe. Jim stayed with Gary and Carol until he turned 18. At 18, you age out of the foster care system, which means the state no longer compensates the foster parents. And since throughout his whole life, Jim had never been wanted without any conditions, he figures Gary and Carol won't want him anymore either. So, you know, why would they keep me? By that time, I wanted to stay there, but I'm like, who's going to, like, they're not getting paid. Why would they keep me? There's no more check for them. So Jim starts packing up his things. That night, Gary and Carol me to the kitchen table and they said, why do you want to leave? I said, I don't, I don't want to leave. I said, but you know, state's going to quit paying. They're like, Jimmy, you're part of the family. We don't have you here for the check. We love you. That changed me. I don't want to say my mom didn't love me. She didn't know how to do that. This family who had no incentive to do so cared not only for me, but they had been fostering, as I understood it, for like 19 years. I was one of their last kids that they were ever going to bring in. And uh, I said, you're part of the family, Jim. It is hard for me to think of a more clear picture of the gospel than this moment. Here's Jim, who's broken and wounded and hurt and feels terrified by all the people around him, and here it is with this family. They, they welcome him in, and even when there's, there's no paycheck for them, they just give of themselves freely. And that, that is a clear picture of the gospel. God comes to us, and he says, I want to take you into the family, and there's nothing in it for me. I'm just simply doing it because I love you. Yeah, like that's, that's something that everybody wants, like not just foster kids. Like that's a universal longing. Yeah, I love this story. I mean, but here's the reality. I mean, even though being loved by Gary and Carol had changed him, I mean, that doesn't mean that the rest of Jim's story is perfect. So in fact, shortly after having that conversation with them in the kitchen, Jim actually did this surprising thing. He left. I ran away that summer, literally snuck out the window in the middle of the night. And I remember them calling me and go, Jim, we want you back. They can't, there's no money. There's no, they just want to take care of me. 
but I ran away and it was, it became very uncomfortable to be loved. And I didn't know what was going on at the time. I was just like, I can't, I didn't know how to deal with this new thing. I didn't know how to be loved. So when Jim ran away, he actually ran away to try to reconnect with his mom, but that did not work out. So Jim actually ended up joining the Navy and fast forward through time, Jim now actually has a family of his own and he's got a great job. And when people find out that he's a foster care kid, a lot of folks just can't believe it. They're shocked because Jim defies a lot of the stereotypes of foster care kids. He didn't end up going to prison. He's pretty emotionally healthy. And that investment that Gary and Carol, his foster parents made in his life, that love that they showed to him, it has stayed with him. Something else that Jim does is he volunteers with an organization called Orphan Care Alliance, where he shares his story in order to be a mouthpiece for other kids that are in the foster care system. And he wants to see kids impacted in the same way that he was. And I'm going to mess it up, but Reagan said that we can't do something for everyone, but everyone can do something for someone. And if you're looking for that reward or looking for that payoff, it may never come. And I know there were so many people that helped me that will never see the payoff, that have never seen my family, that, that, you know, the fact that I've been to college and I've been around the world, that I've, you know, now able to give back and take, you know, these lessons to other people and encourage them. They never saw that. So if you're that person who wants to do some good, you may never see it, but do the good anyway, because every once in a while, a young kid gets through and ends up becoming a contributing member of society. And uh, it's, it's doing the good because it's good and let God do the rest. Yeah. And let me just say this too, that some of you out there who are listening to this episode, you're thinking, you know, this is all great, but I'm not going to be a foster parent. Like some people are called to foster parent and I'm not one of those people. And that is true. Not everyone is called to be a foster parent. You know, God says the church has many parts. And so for you, maybe visiting orphans in their distress looks more like taking a meal to a foster family or hanging out with a foster family. In fact, that has a huge impact too. Here's Layla again. I was like having a major breakdown because I brought them to Sunday school and they went all nuts in Sunday school. And this lady and her cousin, they saw everything that was happening and she's like, come out to lunch with us. I want to I wanna go eat with you guys. And I was kind of shocked. I was thinking like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Like, I want you to be the next person who comes out to lunch with us and is like, oh, okay, never mind. Like, you should return these children. But they took us out to lunch, and that was, like, the most refreshing thing ever. Like, one of them, her cousin, like, sat with the two kids, and um, she sat with me to talk a little bit, and then we joined them. And, like, I felt so refreshed after it gave me, like, the energy and, like, the motivation to, like, keep going. And every day we wake up, like, it's a new day and, like, it's a new chance to try again. One translation of the book of Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. And the good news for us is that God didn't wait until things were perfect. In fact, it's when things were at their worst that God gave his most. In foster care, it isn't about waiting for perfect conditions. It's when things aren't perfect that kids need us the most. To learn more about becoming a foster parent, visit our resource section. There you'll find a link to Kentucky's child placing agencies. For other ways to get involved, visit Orphan Care Alliance at orphancarealliance.org. You can find all these links as well as past episodes of this podcast by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. 
special thank you to our interviewees for this episode, Layla Morris, Will Pratt, and Jim Shields. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zabo, who is also our producer, technical director, editor, and my kid's favorite babysitter. Additional editing by Janelle Dawkins and Justice Smith. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Murphy DX. Murphy DX also did our theme music and our commercial music. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or a year, grow in your faith and life skills. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.